A scientist claims that a race of ancient hobbit people are living on an island in Indonesia. The United Kingdom's former UFO expert speculates that aliens could intervene to prevent the war in Ukraine from escalating. And could Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter be a sign of the coming apocalypse? All this and more on today's Spectral Skull Session. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations, or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Welcome back. I am your host, Dane. This is April 29th, the 64th day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this weekend will be Beltane. Beltane occurs on May 1st. It is a traditional Gaelic festival celebrated by the Irish and Scottish peoples. Today, it's often celebrated by Wiccans and neo-pagans around the world. Beltane falls midway between the spring equinox and summer solstice, it's a time for creating large bonfires and jumping over them to expunge the influence of evil and scare away the little people. Speaking of those little people, a diminutive race of humans believed to have gone extinct 50,000 years ago may still be living on an island in Indonesia. The New York Post is reporting that Gregory Fourth is about to publish a book detailing legends and eyewitness accounts that indicate the Homo floresiensis is still alive in Indonesia. Homo floresiensis is believed to have diverged from the human race one million years ago. It was believed to be a smaller, furrier version of us. Apparently, it's thought to have been about three foot six inches Homo floresiensis would be much closer to us genetically than the chimp. A chimp is believed to have diverged five to seven million years ago, but it would be more distant from us than the Neanderthal, thought to have diverged 500,000 years ago. And of course, there's also the more recently discovered Denisovans, also believed to be smaller than humans. The Denisovans, um, possibly as recently as 300,000 years ago, they diverged. So, if I'm right about this, Homo floresiensis would not have been able to interbreed with humans, while Neanderthals and Denisovans would have been. The reason for this is that most primates have 48 chromosomes, but about 800,000 years ago, there was some kind of a fusion event. Two of the primate chromosomes fused together in the common ancestor for humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans. So we humans 
have only 46 chromosomes. We shared that feature with Neanderthals and Denisovans, allowing us to interbreed with them. But as I said, we would not have been able to interbreed with this Homo floresiensis because it would have had 48 chromosomes. When humans are accidentally born with an extra chromosome, it's called trisomy. It doesn't work out well for that person. It's a health problem. It's a disability. So I'm assuming that if humans and Dennis, humans and Homo floresiensis did interbreed, their children would not be viable offspring. They're, the children wouldn't be able to themselves reproduce. And as further evidence of this, scientists have even looked at the genome of modern Indonesians, and they've been trying to find uh, Homo floresiensis genes in the Indonesians. They can't find any. So when they look at the rest of us, humans, they often find, oh, you got some Neanderthal genes or you have some Denisovan genes. I know Tibetan people have an unusual number of Denisovan genes, and I've heard some people speculate that this explains why Tibetans are able to handle different environments like high altitudes better. But in any event, um, no, they can't find any genetic overlap between Indonesians and um, Homo floresiensis, indicating, thank God, the Indonesians were not interbreeding successfully, at least, with the uh, these little people. And I say thank God because by all the reports, these things would trigger your uncanny valley response. So Gregory Forth in his book about the legends, saying that these things are still alive on the island of Flores, uh, he reports that when people encountered them, it was disturbing. They weren't sure, is this thing human or is it an animal? It seemed to be neither. And uh, in one case, he says somebody found the body and disposed of the body, then later told the story to him, and then he wanted more details, so he came back later, and they were unwilling to talk, indicating to him that they were, that at least their family was so upset by the story that uh, they didn't want to continue to draw attention to themselves and uh, whatever had happened to them when they found it. I don't have very much news on this because, like I said, the book is coming out in May. So we're about to get that book. Maybe I'll take a look at it and do a whole story on it. That book is being published by Simon & Schuster. Well, here's just the um, About section on their website. A remarkable investigation into the hominoids of Flores Island, their place on the evolutionary spectrum, and whether or not they still survive. While doing field work on the remote Indonesian island of Flores, anthropologist Gregory Forth came across people talking about half-ape-like, half-human-like creatures. They once lived in a cave on the slopes of a nearby volcano. Over the years, he continued to record what locals had to say about these mysterious hominoids while searching for ways to explain them as imaginary symbols of the wild or other cultural representations. Then along came the hobbit. In 2003, several skeletons of a small, statured, early human species alongside stone tools and animal remains were excavated in a cave in western Flores, named Homo floresiensis. This ancient homonym was initially believed to have lived until as recently as 12,000 years ago, possibly overlapping with the appearance of Homo sapiens on the island. In view of this timing and the striking resemblance of Floresiensis to the mystery creatures described by the islanders, Forth began to think about the creatures as possibly reflecting a real species, either now extinct, but retained in cultural memory, or even still surviving. He began to investigate reports from the Lyo region of the island, where locals described eight men as still living. Dozens claimed to have even seen them. In Between Ape and Human, we follow forth on the trail of this mystery hominoid 
and the space they occupy in Islanders' culture as both natural creatures and as supernatural beings. In a narrative filled with adventure, lyo culture, and language, zoology, and natural history, Forth comes to a startling and controversial conclusion. Unique, important, and thought-provoking. This book will appeal to anyone interested in human evolution, the survival of species, including our own, and how humans might relate to not-quite-human animals. Between Ape and Human is essential reading for all those interested in cryptozoology and is the only first-hand investigation by a leading anthropologist into the possible survival of a primitive species of human into recent times. End quote. Very interesting, but not everyone is convinced. Paleoanthropologist John Hawkes told Live Science, quote, realistically the idea that there is a large primate that is unobserved on this island and surviving in a population that can sustain itself is pretty close to zero. Hawks went on to add that he believes modern humans may be responsible for the extinction of these hobbit people, and said it's disconcerting to think humans wiped out our distant ancestors, and that could mean our casual use of war is innate. Well, I'm kind of surprised to see a scientist in contemporary times toss around the concept of innateness so, so blithely. Just because something keeps happening, does that mean it's innate? I would argue no. Throughout history, humans have eaten berries. Does that mean that eating berries is innate to humans? No, we just eat berries because that's what's available. Perhaps similarly, we've continually fought wars because there was nothing better to do. Although I am open to the idea that war is uh, an innate feature of human psychology, and so this gives us an opportunity to transition to the war in Ukraine. Looks like that war is escalating dramatically, with Russia now threatening to use nuclear weapons and directly attack NATO forces should they interfere in the war. And we're also seeing that the neighboring nation of Moldova, closely connected to Romania, but also bordering Ukraine, Moldova is now having fighting taking place in their borders too. Um, it, there's a breakaway republic in Moldova called Transnistria, which is another one of these Russian propped up breakaway states. So, you know, I'm in Georgia. Georgia has two of them and uh, Ukraine had one and uh, Moldova had one too. So fighting expands and the threats are increasing. Meanwhile, NATO is supplying heavier weapons, long range artillery, howitzers that are, according to the Wall Street Journal, will be ready for use in June. They have to train the Ukrainians on how to use them because they are so complicated, these new weapons. This situation is really scary. And one of the things that scared me about it um, is seeing the way everybody falls into lockstep around war. So clearly that we know that, we don't really know, but we're told that the Russian population largely supports the war. And the story there seems to be that they don't have a very accurate picture of what's happening. In Ukraine, they don't have a free press. If you even call it an invasion in Russia, you face five years in prison. But we see the same thing happening in the global north, Europe and the United States. People really fall in line around going to war with Russia. There's a political analyst I'm really into, Peter Zihan, who wrote The Accidental Superpower. He predicted this war, I think it was about five years ago, predicted that Russia would undergo spasmic violence followed by collapse. 
Now, he has been saying that Russia won't stop with Ukraine, that they will go further. They have to get 141 million more people under the Russian Empire in order for them to survive. He looks at things through the lens of geography and demographics. And he says there aren't enough young people in Russia to keep that country going. And since it has a history of being an empire, their only way to to survive is to absorb 141 million more people. Of course, there's only 38 million in Ukraine. So he says, this is only the beginning. If they win in Ukraine, they'll keep going. And um, I was talking to someone who I'm almost certain is a CIA agent in Batumi the other day who was saying pretty much the same kind of thing. You know, Putin is a new Hitler and he's on a march to build an empire. I'd like to say that I'm skeptical of this. And, um, I remember 2017, former NATO general Richard Sharif published a book titled War with Russia, an urgent warning. This was a fictional book that was supposed to be a simulation of what the most likely war with Russia and NATO would look like. And this had this book had Russia invading Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the Baltic countries in an effort to tear the NATO alliance apart, the idea being that once Russia invades Nobody will want to go to work to push them out. We just don't care enough about Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania to fight a nuclear war. And so um, Russia's occupation of these countries would be a great strategy, great being a relative term, for tearing apart the NATO alliance, which is the great bugabear of Putin. Now, that never happened. And um, it seems to me that that was Russia's opportunity if they were courageous enough. Courageous, again, might be maybe not the right word, but... They were ballsy enough to try to take on NATO. They should have done it then. They didn't do it then. I don't see any evidence that Putin is reckless enough to try to directly attack a nuclear power. And I think that all this talk about Russia, Russia's an empire that has to conquer 141 million people. They have no other option and it's never going to end. And these are the new Nazis. I do think that that is unrealistic. And I think that it's a new kind of war hysteria that's gripping the West. People are obsessed with this idea. So I'm not going to dwell on it. The show here isn't really about politics, but I do want to ask, is war innate? I have been wondering this a lot myself about whether we might be genetically programmed to go into war mode, a mode where, you know, once we have a clearly defined cultural enemy, we sort of rally around, like they're the enemy. We got to take them out. And, um, and it sort of overrides our rational processes. And if so, does that mean it's just a matter of time before war hysteria takes over a major nuclear power and leads to a nuclear Armageddon? Well, related to this topic, UFO expert Nick Pope was once the uh, UK's official government UFO guy. He worked for the Ministry of Defense for the United Kingdom was responsible for their UFO files. He's been reviving the thought that aliens might intervene in the event of a nuclear war to prevent nuclear exchange from actually taking place. There is a history of UFOs near nuclear missile sites interfering with the function of those weapons. There's stories from both the United States and the former Soviet Union of UFOs appearing hovering over bases, and then the weapons turning on or off at those bases. 
But in the final analysis, Pope believes that it is just wishful thinking that aliens would prevent nuclear war. He said they didn't stop the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So why would they intervene to stop a major nuclear exchange between the powers? Sounds like we are on our own. And on the issue of the apocalypse, I don't know how many of you have noticed that Elon Musk has now purchased Twitter, a $44 billion deal that has mainstream media aghast. Of course, this is very good news for us at the Spectral Skull Session. I have long suspected that our Twitter account is being uh, not shadow banned, but being squelched. And I noticed that when I post when I post a tweet and I include a link to a mainstream newspaper source, I get like 120 views within a few days. But when I post just a regular tweet with a picture, it will only get a half a dozen views, even though I have 100 followers. Maybe they there's, there's clearly some algorithms behind the scenes that are determining what gets seen and what doesn't that have been working to the disadvantage of non-traditional news sources like us. And so uh, I'm excited at the possibility that Musk will at least let us know exactly what's happening in the algorithms. But there's this interesting question that I've been thinking about, which is whether this is bad for the world that Musk takes over Twitter. And so hear me out on this. In the 1950s, Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi said, where are all the aliens? Fermi observed that given the large number of stars in our galaxy and the age of our galaxy, our star is actually not the first, not a first generation star. I think it's a second or third generation. So um, there was a whole generation of stars that lived and died before we got here, before our star got here in the first place. So there was plenty of time for aliens to colonize the entire galaxy, even assuming that you can never travel faster than light. So the question is, where are all the aliens? Why are we not hearing from them? And so that is the, the paradox. If life is easy and our universe is as old as we think it is, there should be lots of aliens everywhere. And yet, so far, we don't have any official contact with anything. Now, there are so many answers people have given to Fermi's paradox. And um, I'm sympathetic to the view that the best answer is, well, they are here. You just, just don't, we just don't officially recognize their communications right now. But there's a whole class of solutions to the paradox that says, well, aliens aren't out there. Um, that says they're not out there because they don't make it. They don't survive long enough to colonize the galaxy. And these are the great filter solutions. Great filter solutions are those that say there's some phenomena that wipes out most life in the galaxy. So it never gets to the point where it can colonize everything really not even wipe out, but just there's some phenomena that prevents civilizations from reaching the point where they're able to do galactic colonization. You know, the most basic version of the Great Filter is that civilizations destroy themselves. They self-destruct in some way. Maybe they use up all their resources. Maybe they fight a nuclear war. So they just don't make it. But there's a solution to the paradox within the Great Filter class that I've always found really interesting, which is that as civilizations become more advanced, they might lose interest in space exploration. And I've been worrying about this one for the last few years, as I've noticed that we seem to be less attentive to outer space than our ancestors were, in part because of light pollution, 
but I also think in part because of the way our technologies have been developing. We've been putting more and more effort into communication and computers instead of into mechanical type things. And I always thought Elon Musk was an exception to this, that he has SpaceX building spaceships and he has Tesla building electric cars. And um, he has the boring company that's supposed to be building tunnels underneath the earth. These are big, concrete, tangible things, machines and mechanical solutions to real world problems that seem to be moving us into the future, the future that I want to be in, the one with flying cars and people on other planets, rather than a future with um, interconnectedness through Neuralink or, um, you know, an internet that can read your mind or uh, virtual reality that's so real you never feel like you need to have a normal life. But um, it's really, it's a little disheartening to me and to see Musk getting involved in Twitter because I just don't think that that's a good use of his skill set. I completely agree with Musk that freedom of speech is extremely important. And you've heard about that from us on the show, I believe, absolutely believe in one real conspiracy theory, and that is the existence of the integrated control network, some kind of association of powerful players inside the Western world that is attempting to control what people say and think on the internet. And I do think that that is contrary to the long-term survival of the human race. I agree with Musk about that. And the reason is, if, um, if our society is as complex as it appears to be, top-down control is not going to work. The only way for our society to survive is if information is diffusing as rapidly as possible. And so the smartest minds on the planet are able to confront the biggest problems as quickly as possible. The more we regulate and control information, the more a small number of people are controlling what other people are talking about, I think the less likely it is that the real problems that we're facing get brought to the attention of the best minds in a timely way. But I really wish Elon Musk wasn't the guy doing this. I wish somebody else was taking on this project of um, maintaining free speech in the town square. Because I like that Elon Musk builds machines that solve problems. So will the human race ever reach out to the stars or will we be sucked into an inner space, a tick-tock virtual reality world where all our needs appear to be met through the use of technologies directly interfacing with our brain, right? I hope not. And uh, there's an interesting question about whether virtual reality, the metaverse that Zuckerberg is building, might represent um, a tool that would further allow humanity to pursue the option of not engaging with the concrete material world around us. I'm not a materialist. I believe there is a spiritual world and it is important, but I also believe the concrete material world is important. It's the substratum upon which our spirituality is built. So I'm worried about this. Of course, I'm worried about everything right now because it's a difficult time for the human race. In any event, let's keep praying that we get through this that life goes on. The Spectral Skull Session, I've been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.